Hello and welcome to this episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Today we're here with our guests Paul Clark, CTO of Ocado, and David Lane, Professor at Harriet Watt University. And we'll ask them to introduce themselves a little bit more in a second. Um, but just to give you a bit of context, today we're going to be talking about smart machines. And this is in fact a part one of two series of podcasts and our second podcast that will be released shortly after this one is about planetary digital twins so if you enjoy what we talk about today please join us for that one um, along with our guests we also have neil thompson here with us today hi neil hello everyone and we've got simon evans hello and of course i'm vicky reynolds <laughs> hello um, so we'll start off by asking Paul Clark, maybe, uh, to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much, Vicky. Thank you for having us on the uh, podcast. Um, uh, yeah, my day job is as CTO of Ocado. I've been at Ocado for about 14 and a half years. Uh, I've spent most of my career having uh, been a physicist originally, then in the computer industry, um, and uh, now in Ocado, uh, I used to run our, our Cardo technology division, uh, but for the last couple of years, I now run a division we created called the Office of the CTO, and it's focused on sort of some of the further out kind of research and innovation and um, exploring all sorts of ways to use our smart machines, uh, not just to move food atoms around, which is what the core of the business does, but to move all sorts of other atoms around and go off and cover, cause trouble in other sectors. Fantastic. Okay, great. David, would you mind giving us uh, an introduction? Hi, Vicky. Uh, uh, thank you for inviting us onto the podcast. Great to be here. So I'm David Lane. I'm a professor and the founding director of the thing called the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics. So we're in Edinburgh. Um, and it's a big uh, sort of science and teaching and innovation engine hundreds or so PhD students, uh, some big programs of work, National Robotarium going up, new buildings, um, focused on science and innovation, as I said. But I've had a career working with smart machines, not just in the university, but also starting businesses, particularly in marine robotics and autonomous underwater vehicles. Um, and these days I'm also working with robots commercially in uh, ed tech, in healthcare, in manufacturing, a little bit in food. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I see smart machines from both a research and science point of view, but also, you know, how to do something useful uh, in the real world, in the marketplace. Awesome. Well, let's start then by actually determining what a smart machine is. Um, how would you, how would you describe it? I suppose, uh, you know, it's 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 where sort of the digital and the physical worlds collide. You know, a smart machine, um, uh, as opposed to a robot, which is typically you know controlled. A smart machine often uh, you know has embedded intelligence, um, maybe is autonomous. It could be orchestrated, um, and is probably reasonably highly sensed, so that it can you know know where it is and know what's around it, perhaps. You know, and uh, smart machines you know, come in many shapes and sizes. And indeed, you know, there are smart machines, you know, all around us now, you know, our washing machines, our cars, our planes and trains. These are all examples of smart machines. Um, some of them move, some of them don't. Uh, but they have characteristics in terms of, you know, that sort of embedded intelligence and sensing. 
and they typically also perhaps collect quite a lot of data and and mm. uh, stream that up to the cloud in some cases i'd, I'd add to that um smart machines always work with people there's an interface to people that you right. have to think about and, and how you do that and the different kinds of people, I mean, different roles that people have working with the machines is, is really important. And they're very often networked. So to the point Paul made about the cloud, but part of their utility comes from the way they work together or network or pass information around. Um, and yeah, we're finding them more and more in all sorts of places, you know, in, the, in your home, I mean, your vacuum cleaner, your washing machine, your kettle, we were, we were riffing yesterday on, you know, the smart washing machine is the one that doesn't start unless it's got all the socks in pairs inside. You know? <laughs> is that something useful? I don't know. We'll come back to that. Um, you know, and, and actually one of, the, one of the attributes of a smart machine or a robot indeed is that when it's accepted, nobody calls it that anymore. You call it a car. Name changes. Right. Mm. Yeah, the name changes, you know. Um, so, it, and that's why we use smart machine as a sort of broad catch-all term to try and cluster the class of activity of, of uh, machine you know together fair and i guess both of your respective organizations do a lot around the smart machine space altogether don't you so um I guess I wonder, and another part that we've spoke about before the call is your involvement in the robotics growth partnership i wonder if you can maybe unpack a bit of that to give some context for us so we've had a long history of working with government um, or government has had a long history working with us uh, to try and understand how to make the UK more you know, productive, prosperous, resilient, sustainable using smart machines. And so the Robotics Growth Partnership has been stood up by the previous uh, innovation minister um, as a group of a very cross-sectoral group from both industry and academia to, to sit and noodle about what, what is it that government should be doing, what is it we should be doing across the UK um, in order to um, get ourselves, get everybody in the UK moving together to, to, to do all those things as a, as a country. So that we've been working on that now for just over a year and, uh, and having some success, I think. We'll get onto that in a minute, I'm sure. Paul, you'll have views about that. Yeah, I, I, I suppose, as, as you say, that that's one of the areas that you know you and I are involved in, and we often joke about the fact that we see more of each other than we do our families. And I think that's because we, we sit on <laughs> we sit on some of the the same kind of forums. So we're both on the AI Council as well, and and uh, a bunch of other things. And and what these have in common is is it is about bringing together these different the different pieces of the picture that that. Uh, 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 culminate, if you like, in a smart machine. So, you know, the machine learning and the vision systems and the, the sensing and the, the communication um, and, um, you know, the, the, the challenge that we have is, is how, do we, how do we drive the adoption, you know, of these smart machines, you know, at scale? How do we reduce the barrier to adoption? How do we make it easier for, for companies um, who perhaps might never think that smart machines could improve their businesses to buy their first mm. robot or smart machine. So ma make it um, make it make the technologies more um, accessible. But also, uh, and David can talk about a great example about this. But you know, once again, the, the the pandemic that we're living through now has has shown you know how we need lots of new kinds of smart machines uh, to help us, whether it be 
you know, uh, going into places that humans uh, would find dangerous or, you know, manufacturing um, scarce supplies or delivering uh, equipment or picking up samples and, and all of these kinds of examples, you know, smart machines can help us, but they, they take time to mature, you know, so you, you can't just suddenly say, oh, you know, we need them tomorrow. No, well, like humans, they, they kind of take time to grow up and, and, and that's uh, a key part of what we're focused on uh, with the Robotic Growth Partnership is how to make it uh, quicker and easier to do the ideation, the design, the testing and the, the maturation of those smart machines. But I'll let David explain that. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Um, I know what you're referring to. Um, <laughs> I've teed him up nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've done this before. <laughs> so, um, so I run a, you know, I say I run it, I'm part of it really. We've got a big centre and uh, in Edinburgh. And in, in April, we got a call from the Scottish Government COVID-19 committee saying, you know, we've got a problem disinfecting our hospitals. You know, running out of PPE, we're running out of people. Uh, can we repurpose some of your robots, your mobile robots, to come and do some of the disinfecting, put some UV lights on them, and you know, yada yada. Um, so we all convened and thought, you know, what could we do here? But of course, this was right in the middle of lockdown, mm. so we couldn't get into the labs. Well, you could get in the labs, but only one or two people, and not to do very much. And so we found that actually we would be able to do something, or we decided we'd be able to do something, but it was going to take us six months, right? Because it was just so difficult to do things. We didn't have the tools we needed in order to work remotely together, developing software, repurposing robots, trying the uh, trying things out, um, and then getting it working, you know, in, in, realist, in realistic environments before we actually took it into a hospital with real people and real patients, right? Um, and this was at the time when the ventilator challenge was going in full swing. And in, in a handful of weeks, you know, the, the teams that were competing in that were designing, building, certifying, manufacturing ventilators and getting them delivered to the NHS. So they had some tools um, uh, that they were able to use to do that. So we really recognized at that point, this is getting those tools together where people can work together remotely is, is, the, is, is, the, is the glue that we need to, to make ourselves work better together and not just researchers but it's researchers working with people in companies mm. users and being able to do it in a sort of geographically distributed way that has a huge advantage um and you know the pandemics and accelerant all that stuff um you know it reduces the friction about people working together so kind of what we've been thinking about and doing in in the robotics growth partnership is thinking about well what are the tools that we would need to do that and i think both paul and i have had experiences developing robots uh, in our own domains, um, you know, in Ocado for warehousing, and in my case, particularly uh, robots in the ocean for doing, you know, the offshore energy uh, and other applications that are doing surveying, inspection, repair and maintenance, that kind of thing, where, you know, we, we started, always started simulating. You know, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't start by building yeah building because you yeah. just don't know how big and how long and how fast and how much energy and what weight and all that kind of stuff so you simulate first and then when you and you and you, you visualize with that you work with customers a little bit you work together and then having done that you 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 start to move towards the real world but you don't do it in one big jump right what we yeah. found is the way to do, that works for us is that you, you slowly start to introduce the physical, the real thing. So 
bits of hardware, which could be bits of computing hardware. So you start to build the flight code of the thing you're going to work on, or it could be parts of um, you know, the physical embodiment of the robot. And you, and you live in this kind of hybrid world where you've got some simulation and you've got some, you've got some um, real robot. And you kind of co-develop it all to the point where, and visualize, so the bits you haven't got, you can't physically see, you, 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 know, you, you do graphical representations of that. And, and to the point when you've then got you know, real robot with real sensors doing real things in a, what we, we like to, in a physical environment, and ultimately that will be with people, we call that a living lab, so that robot, robots and people move in the same space. But part of the magic is that we still keep the simulation going. There's lots of reasons to still keep the simulation going mm. at the same time as the real robot. Because um, in, through the simulation, you can do things like machine learning to help train the robot, because you may not have enough examples of situations in the real world that you can't create them all to do the training. It's too dangerous in some cases, or you just can't physically access it. Um, but also the, the, the simulation can keep an eye on what the robot's doing. Um, and you can use that for sort of prognostics and diagnostics, you know, make sure nothing's broken, predicting things are going to break in the future. That's a pretty useful thing to be able to do. Um, but then the, you know, the, the, the data from the real robot can also help to tune up the simulation as well and keep that tuned in. So, and, you know, the, the, and Paul, I'll riff on this, this a lot shortly, I'm sure. You know, the, the, the phrase digital twin, which is kind of like the simulation that runs alongside the real, the real robot, or indeed the real environment as well. The real magic of a digital twin and the thing that distinguishes it from just a simulation or a representation is that, that fact that it can work in lockstep with the real world. So mm -hmm. for us, and I guess maybe you've had this on lots of other podcasts, people saying the same thing, but that's really a, a really essential component of what we do. And even when the thing goes out of the living lab into the field, you know, people that, in my case, we're, we're running things offshore. We've got robots under the water. You can't see them. You know, your, your sponsor or your customer goes, what's Desperate, happening? where's my money gone? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and so you have to, you know, you show them the visualization on the screen and they say, well, we don't believe you. You know, Yeah, you could it doesn't just really look like that. You could just it's not green. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and you, you, you end up, you know, saying things like, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to surface over here in, you know, three, two, one now, and it does, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's, it's invaluable to, to do that. I'll let Paul come in a bit because Paul's got a ton of experience of this in the way that Arcado have developed the fantastic warehousing. Uh, uh, UK's answer to Amazon is Arcado. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> Thank <Subtle>. you, David. <laughs> uh, um, so sorry, the, the good bits of Amazon, the good bits of Amazon. Don't call me aggressive or I'll cut you. Um, right. So, I suppose um, I should check this is on. Your mic quality sounds very good, Neil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, Ocado then, the UK's answer to Amazon. <laughs> Tell us about that, Paul. <laughs> um, well, I just to, get, to go back to where David was saying, uh, you know, in terms of uh, at the start of the pandemic, I mean, obviously, my, the parts of our business just had to keep going as usual and with a 100x demand, you know, when lockdown happened. Um, but for our researchers and innovators, you know, they kind of headed home with 3D printers under their arms and, and they were actually able in, in many cases to keep going, doing a lot of their experiments and, and testing and modeling 
but using our synthetic environments to do that. And, uh, you know, that that's a great example. And, and of course, there are other organizations, you know, um, who have those kind of capabilities, but it's, it's not as accessible as it needs to be. So part of the vision, you know, for the robotics growth partnership, what we want to do is, is to make it, uh, you know, way more accessible and, and, and potentially to build, you know, open source, you know, uh, shared environments for building uh, these kind of synthetic environments and the digital mm. twins. Um, and so that lots of people can design, you know, smart machines and other kinds of things um, uh, collaboratively and that collaboratively. And that's obviously important for things like a, you know, when you're in a pandemic, but it's also important because going forwards, we're all going to have to move around less, you know, and therefore yeah. collaborating at a distance uh, uh, effectively, you know, including, you know, with immersive technologies like VR, but, but also, you know, with modeling and, 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 and other tools and, and, you know, effective collaboration does mean, mean more than just being on video conferencing. And I think that's really what we're talking about here, but going back to our smart machines. Yeah. We build huge automated warehouses. We've got 40 of them to build over the next four years around the world for our platform customers. And uh, each of them typically contains about 3000 robots. Uh, they are orchestrated. So they're not autonomous. You couldn't get the kind of efficiency and throughput if they were whizzing around trying to avoid one another. So they're controlled by a kind of a hive mind uh, that does the, uh, the optimization. Uh, there's a lot of machine learning in that. And um, they, these, these robots, they produce, or smart machines, they produce about 5,000 data points, 1,000 times a second. And we capture all those uh, data and we stream them up to the cloud. And uh, we do two things with those data. We, we send them into our digital twin uh, of uh, that warehouse or that swarm and use that to drive optimizations and try out new algorithms and all that kind of stuff. And then send that back in to update the real control systems. Uh, but we also feed it into um, a healthcare system. Um, and that's... Uh, looking at trying to keep the swarm uh, um, in tip-top shape. So spotting when a particular robot's getting catching a cold um, and needs to come in and go to the doctor's surgery. Uh, and so that's, that's another um, uh, example of, um, uh, you know, what you can do with smart machines is, is you can get them, you can not only monitor them at scale, but you can also share the learnings from one machine to another. So you can start getting that mm. kind of swarm intelligence, if you like, um, uh, across um, uh, different machines, which is why the interconnecting that David referred to earlier is so important. And, and you mentioned in... Oh, sorry, Simon, go ahead. I was going to say on, on that connectivity piece, um, interesting you're saying you, all, all these data points, the 5,000 data points, 1,000 times a second, being streamed to the cloud into this kind of hive mind that's controlling them all. There's a huge reliance there on a number of different parties in that technology chain. Mm. Um, I guess, how, how do you cope with that? Because then the your twin and your environment isn't your, I guess you're reliant on other people um, and other systems succeeding and not succeeding on going down, you know, connectivity, et cetera. Is that, how's that ripple through and how do your smart machines respond in those situations? Yes. Well, I, I probably painted a slightly uh, inaccurate picture there because uh, the, the data goes two ways. It, 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 the, the real-time control um, is actually takes place, you know, within the warehouse. So, uh, and that's necessary because the speed, if you like, um, at which we have to orchestrate, you know, 3,000 machines, you know, flying around at, um, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, with like five centimeter gaps between them. Um, um, uh, sorry, uh, no, it's less than that. It's uh, a one centimeter gap between them. Um, is, um, you know, that's very, very high tolerance. We need um, very low latency there and very, mm. you know, predictable communication. So we, we, um, uh, talk to them, you know, we don't use Wi-Fi or anything like that. We have our own proprietary way of talking to them. Um, so that all happens within the warehouse, if you like. But but then the the kind of the the, the uh, healthcare system that I talked about, that yeah. is where we stream those data to the cloud. And But that is, that's not kind of critical for real-time control. That's about, you know, as I say, keeping the swarm happy. So you're quite right that resilience to, you know, JCBs going around digging up, you know, uh, the fiber that's coming into your warehouse um, yes. is, is is an issue. But that's why we have, you know, multiple redundant, you know, data and power circuits. We have generator coverage. You know, these 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 warehouses are built, you know, uh, very much with that kind of uh, resilience and redundancy in mind. Don't call me aggressive, or I'll cut you. Um, right. I have a little bit so, of a question about responsibility, and. Um, Talking about COVID uh, and the NHS and, and help that's needed there, um, it's clear that we need to future-proof. We need to think about um, issues that could happen um, way beyond our imagination uh, that, that, we already, that we need to start planning for, essentially. And some of the responsibility um, obviously lies centrally. Um, how much of it falls on private organizations uh, to develop their own skills because there's a, there's a whole lot of investment that's needed there both in time and in terms of money. Um, so I guess my question is how much investment is appropriate for private organizations to be asked to make? How much are we expecting um, government to, to support this? And how do we invest in the future skills? It's really critical that that that, that the core uh, enabling kind of low-level technologies um, are um, uh, available to all. And um, you know, we talk a lot and think a lot about you know uh, the the low-level data infrastructure that's needed to support all of this, and then the kind of what we call the digital commons for gluing together these digital twins or these synthetic environments. And um, you know, the analogy that we often use for that is the World Wide Web, you know, which, um, you know, Tim Berners-Lee went around, you know, in his white van, persuading people to connect their servers to this thing that he was uh, calling the internet. And in most cases, in many cases, people were kind of asking, what, well, why should we do that? What is the benefit of that? Why, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they certainly weren't predicting that however many years later, people will be sitting on you know, video conference calls, you know, dealing with a pandemic, taking it all for granted. And <laughs> yeah. um, that's kind of where we're at. We we need to build these digital commons so that they are owned by nobody and available and and available to everybody, mm -hmm. a, a bit like the internet is. And, and that's its power. But similarly, it's impossible to really predict all of the uh, first, let alone second or third order benefits that will come from um, uh, the uh, from this kind of uh, collaborative uh, environment for modeling um, and designing smart machines. Uh, and so there is a there's an element of a leap of faith uh, involved in that. Um, but 
uh, I think you only have to look at companies that have invested in that kind of capability to see what the power of that is. And it's really about taking that up to a national or indeed a potentially a planetary scale. If I can sort of build that out a bit. The analogy with the internet is really good. And if you think about the internet, you know, there's a lot of standards there and, and kind of common software that allows you know, all our computers to talk to each other. Right. And it's the same with how we think digital twins for use with smart machines, but actually in general, can, can connect. And so, so Vicky asked the question, you know, what should government do? What should co companies or organizations do? We think government really has to take the leadership around getting those standards right and getting um, that sort of common plumbing, middleware, commons, whatever you want to call it, you know, that, that connects it all together. But having done that, it's, it's other organizations and other enterprises that will use that to develop who, know, who knows what, right? And, and, and it just, and it takes off and that, because it's in their interest to do it. Um, and, and there are some cautionary notes about that. Those of you who, if you followed what's been happening in con the congressional hearings in the US where some of the large US tech companies have been hauled in front of congressmen, Congress people in order to you know, justify their business models, the antitrust situation mm -hmm. and everything that's going on around bias and um, uh, the social dilemma, Netflix movie, if you've seen it, all that stuff. And, you know, the, the, the conversations they're having there is about breaking up the, the, the tech companies and that may or may not work. Uh, but the, the thing that certainly will make a big difference there is if they insist and indeed legislate on those organizations being interoperable. So you can log into your social media through any of the portals and you own your data. Um, and the, the, that situation is analogous to, I'm old enough to remember when the first mobile phones happened in the US. Uh, and if you were on the Verizon network, you couldn't make a call to the Sprint network and vice versa. And if you switched from one network to the other, you couldn't take your phone number with you. And it's exactly the same situation. And indeed what was happening there was a concentration of kind of commercial power with the, the, the companies that were running the networks. It's the same situation here. And my kind of prediction or hope uh, is that the Department of Justice has enough lawyers in, in the US to take on the lawyers of the big tech companies. And, and they're able to bring that about, to some, that co connectivity about to, to some extent. And so we're in the same place here. You, you can imagine that, you know, many corporations have got digital twins and are doing digital twin technology of one kind or another for different purposes. And through interoperability, it creates an ecosystem which is not going to be owned by any one or two, you know, large corporations globally. It's going to be a much le more level playing field and a much healthier environment for new businesses to grow, new kinds of activity to happen, just in the way that the internet in general ha has done. So it's a, it's a very exciting prospect, but it's important that we get the standards right and the way that we handle data and privacy and, and, and security as well, um, to provide that underpinning glue. And then we can sort of do the, do the, rope, do the smart machine thing on top of that and start yeah. but, know, doing all that afterwards. But I think you made an interesting point when you're going back to that, um, we're talking about the, the, the Senate activity with the tech companies. And if we 
transpose what's happened to the internet to smart machines in terms of the you know, the, 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 the businesses that operate on the internet um, are essentially reached a point where they are borderless and detaching themselves from, from government completely. I mean, I know this is a super poor question, but would, is, is that an early warning sign in terms of connecting smart machines to that network? Are we going to empower certain types of organizations to accelerate from that? Are we going to have to see different forms of government? Are we going to have to attach are we going to have to detach government from the from the ground, from exa for example? What's your thoughts around that? Um, I'll, I'll, let me riff with that for a bit and then pass it back to Paul. Uh, <laughs> to give me some thinking time, really. Uh, I mean, it's a great question, Neil. Great question. Um, if, if we're drawing... This might not be the answer, but let me see how it goes. The, if, if we're sort of drawing parallels of what happened on the internet, right? One of the sort of unexpected, the big American tech companies that have grown up, you know, 15 years ago, they were scrappy little startups. Right? Yeah. 15 years, not very long. Um, they have developed a business model and a, a sort of culture which has, um, you know, has introduced bias in the way that they, they do all the machine learning, they learn about you, they influence what you do, you know, social dynamic stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we've now recognized that and we're going to do something about it, right? And I guess what we're thinking about in smart machines is not to have those same sort of unexpected effects happen as we develop network smart machines for use, you know, in, in cross sectors. Let me give you an example. Um, in your home or in some people's homes, you have uh, vacuum cleaners that map that navigate around, you know, and actually store lots of data, okay? What happens to that data? How does that data get used? In the future, the next kind of generation of machines like that could be companions. Lots of people are lonely, elderly mm. people, um, people who have dementia. Robots can, smart machines can provide cognitive support. Um, and, you know, some of the companies I work with and actually chair one of them, uh, uh, you know, we're into the business of building smart machines, robots that are, that are emotionally engaging. They, they look cute, they move cute, they behave cute, and you think they're lovely, okay? And what that exposes is that we as a species are wide open. You know, we think we're rational beings who... Mm. We make up our own minds. We, you know, we we're, uh, you know, we, we make decisions, but actually we're just we're just biased left, right, and centre. To cute things, yeah. <laughs> well, in all sorts of ways, there's all sorts of things will bias us, right? And indeed, social media has recognised that, and they yeah. they mess with our heads. But you can see, but if you've got a, a machine in your smart machine in your house that you trust, that you enjoy, that's a pet, you know. Uh, it could it could suggest things to you. It could nudge you, right? In in all sorts of ways, and it, it would be the sort of smart machines version of the bias that you see from in social media. So if a you know large corporation has put the machine in your house, you know just think of the ways it could mess with your head to get you to buy yeah. something or to get you to do something or to behave in a certain way or to make a vote in a, a, you know just just go with it, right? So kind of part of the ethical discussions we're having you know, is, is about that kind of thing. And I'm not sure we've got all the answers yet. 
we can talk about that a bit if you like. But it but it's a real concern. And part of what Robotics Growth Partnership is thinking about is, along with all the other people who are thinking about AI and the ethics of AI, is how should we introduce these 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 smart machines into into these situations, like in like in the home. Um, so that we don't have these unexpected consequences, but we do get the benefits. Not aggressive. Don't call me aggressive or I'll cut you. Um, right. So. I suppose um, I should check this is on. Your we... mic quality sounds very good, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Which sums up heavy perfectly. Um, assertive feminist, I think. Assertive. Is, yeah. Very good. Not aggressive. Don't call me aggressive or I'll cut you. Um, right. <laughs> So I suppose um, I should check this is on. Your we, mic quality sounds very good, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are now recording. The sort of rules of the game are um, I'm going to ask some questions. Uh, obviously, feel free to, to ask each other questions as well. Um, but I'm going to try and make sure that once we start a conversation or a question has been asked, that it is finished and answered, um, even if it's not straight away just making sure that we close all the loops um and, and i'll be doing my best to open those loops and not closing the question <laughs> i'll be trying to rain rain neil in um and um i might jump in every now and again with with a comment or something like that but i'm more just just moderating today um i'll do the introductions in a minute which basically i'll just be introducing the the podcast the fact that it's one of two um don't call me aggressive or i'll cut you um Right. So I suppose um, I should check this is on. Your we, mic quality sounds very good, Neil. <laughs> um, we are now recording.